evening. Good to have each one of you here this evening on a Thursday night, a, a beautiful night. It's good to have those that uh, are with us uh, online. And uh, we, you can see us, but we don't get to see you. So we'd love to have you online, but also here. But we uh, want to have the missionary moment. But uh, there was an Alvin Sidon. He's ill, and they wanted us to remember him in prayer. So we're going to open for prayer right now and remember Alvin. And, uh, and then uh, he was a graduate from Bernard College, right? So, Our Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for what you do in our lives. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is among us. We thank you for everything that has been accomplished during this camp meeting. We know that uh, Dr. Hermes has proclaimed your gospel in a relevant way. We ask you to continue to member and do our work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Somebody mentioned to me that they were from the old Bethel camp over in Coshocton, Ohio. Dr. Hermes has a story about that camp. He went in a canoe or anyhow, he almost drowned. Now you think, I'm not going to tell the rest of the story. All right. Uh, it's his story. All right. We're going to invite Reverend Michael Tipton to come and share the missionary mighty moment. Well, it's so good to be with you again tonight. We want to welcome Mike Brown uh, to share with tonight's missionary moment. Mike has served as a missionary in Bolivia since 1986. He is a member of the board at Bolivia Evangelical University. He is a professor at Berea Bible Seminary. He is a teacher at the Santa Cruz Christian Learning Center. He ser has served in field leadership. Uh, he has preached literally across the country of Bolivia. And so uh, we are just so glad, Mike, that you could be with us tonight. And we're thankful for the way that God has blessed you and blessed your ministry. And we just would love to uh, have you share with us this evening. Okay, well, good evening. Good to see you here. It's good to be here. And uh, greetings from my wife as well. She's unable to be here. Unfortunately, she took a tumble the other day and banged up her leg. And she discovered today she has a fracture beside her knee. And so, no fun. Um, you might remember her in prayer as she comes to mind. But, um, well, okay. What? What's a missionary without his missionary stories about animals, right? <laughs> it seems like most missionaries have to have some sort of story about some animals. Uh, um, and after being in Bolivia since 1986, I, I have plenty of them that I could tell about crocodiles or capybaras or, or monkeys or foxes and vultures and sloths and iguanas, parrots and toucans and bats and mosquitoes. What's possessed me here? Uh, snakes and piranhas, some anteaters too. Okay, I'll stop there. All right. All right. And I don't have time to tell you stories about all those animals anyway. Okay? Ask me later if you want a few. Um, but there's one I want to share just briefly here this evening. 
uh, actually, it's one that I've shared with kids a number of times as an illustration, but I got to thinking about it, and it's actually a good one for us grown-up kids, too, a good reminder for us. I was sitting in church one night in Bolivia in one of our more rustic churches, and um, near the front, we were used to the wildlife wandering in once in a while, a stray dog or a stray cat, the lizards on the walls, of course, and and when the clapping started, the bats would get stirred up and fly overhead and during the service, that sort of thing, right? Well, on this particular night, I was there sitting on the front near the, on the left side of the church, and I watched as a tarantula came walking into the sanctuary from the open side door. And I watched that tarantula as it made its way toward the altar and then paused and then turned around and headed back toward the door. And I made the joke, of course, about the tarantula that came in to pray at the altar, right? Of course. Um, but you and I both know full well that that tarantula left the altar the same ugly, dirty spider that it was as when it came in. Good news. That doesn't have to happen with us or the Bolivian people or anybody else, right? God does miraculous things at an altar of prayer. And I've seen that happen there in Bolivia, just as I'm sure many of you have seen it happen here. Same God meeting the same heart need that's common to us all. The Bolivian people need to hear that. We need to tell that. We need to continue to let them know that great story of Christ and his love. Donna and I have sought to share that story now for many years there. But the work's not done, and there are still people that need to hear. I invite you to share in this ministry, to reach the people in the heart of South America with the gospel message that they so desperately need to hear. Keep praying. Keep giving. Keep going, and you will make an eternal difference in the lives of these people in Bolivia. Thank you, friends. God bless you. Thank you, Mike. Mike will be available after the service. Please stop over and talk to him, visit his table, and pick up a few more stories about some of those Bolivian animals. Um, I've been asked about my pictures and my CDs and USB. You know, a lot of these new cars don't even have CDs anymore. And I have eight tracks and cassettes. <laughs> we remember that, don't we? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, but uh, the I Give Me, the song last night, is on that. And another song I'm going to do tonight. I have... Uh, two CDs together. One is My Songs I've Written and then a hymn medleys. Don Reddick, you remember Dr. Don Reddick? He and I put this together. I think you'll enjoy. The pictures, uh, part of the proceeds go to foster families and um, I believe that we need to do that. And so the pictures are available as well. You'll see Helping Hands and that's what it's for. Well, let's stand together and sing, I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I know the words, you don't need the words there. Well, I'm so glad I'm a part of God. 
Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Sure. Well, uh, I want to do a very special moment. Um, my mom turned 95 years old, and um, she would walk two miles a day. And even before her 
birthday, she had walked two miles, and we had a great celebration. Two weeks later, I called her up, and I said, Mom, how you doing? And she said, Mark, I'm so weak, I can't even walk to the mailbox. I called my sister up, who lived about a half a mile from her. I said, something's wrong. We took Mom to the doctor. Next thing we know, knew, we had to take her to the oncology doctor. And uh, my mom found out that she had terminal cancer. Well, we went home. She didn't hear the doctor. And she said, what did the doctor say? I said, Mom, you don't have many days to live. And she said, well, can I go on then? I'm ready to go. I said, well, wait a few days at least, will you? And I said, Mom, I want you to do me a favor. I want, you, I want to record you doing the, or speaking the words of Psalms 23. She had been studying it for two years, and I got a video of tape of her. Would you go ahead and play that for me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Mom passed away eight days later after that. And when I think that God, Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross. To take away my sin. Sing it with me. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Then Sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art! How great thou art! 
when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home what joy shall fill my heart then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art then sings my soul my Savior God to Thou art and sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. God. Amen. Amen. Wow. What a mighty God we serve. Amen? Amen. Praise God. I am going to ask that Bruce Sigmund could come and lead us in prayer tonight. He's Reverend Bruce Sigmund. He's on the District Board of Trustees. And uh, if you would just share about your great-grandchild and what a miracle that God has done in that child's life. I know it's, uh, he gives a very concise testimony. <laughs> Perhaps many of you have heard this story. Our oldest grandson and his wife were expecting their first child would be Vicki and I's first great-grandchild and Marie's great-great-grandchild. And in November of 2020, they did the ultrasound to determine the baby's gender. And they came home that afternoon, stopped by the house, and told us that the, we was going to have a little boy, but uh, there was a complication. The ultrasound showed that his intestines were growing on the outside of his body. So we began to pray. Our church began to pray. People all over the country began to pray. We prayed for healing. Before he was born, because we believe, as the scripture says, that we are knit inside our mother's womb. And so we prayed for healing. He was born February 8th, 2021, one day before my birthday. And uh, he was born at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton. And his intestines were on the outside of his body. And they'd already made plans. Within 15 minutes, they put him in the ambulance, transferred him down the road to Dayton Children's Hospital, where the surgeon and his staff we're waiting to perform the procedure to put his intestines back inside. They take the baby into the operating room, the surgeon's ready, and just as the surgeon's preparing, the baby wiggled and his intestines went back in on their own. And uh, 
He required no stitches. They used part of the umbilical cord to close the wound. The surgeon said he'd been doing that for 30 years and had never seen that happen before. So the medical staff there at Children's, they named him their miracle baby. He was supposed to be there for eight weeks. He was there three and a half. And uh, now he's a bundle of joy. Vicky keeps him three days a week. He's now 17 months old. He runs through the house like, like any 17-month-old would. But uh, I think Vicky said it best. You know, we'd been praying for healing before he was born. But God wanted people to see the healing. Had he been born without his affliction, people could have said that ultrasound was just a glitch. But for those people to see that miracle, and for those of us who have been praying to see that answer to prayer, what a miracle it is. What a mighty God we serve. And thank you. And in that same year, 2021, as most of you know, I was going through radiation and chemotherapy, and that baby was therapeutic to me. Uh, when he would come over and Vicky would just put him in my arms, just, just a peace that come over me like I can't, can't explain. And I looked at that baby and I said, God's still in the miracle business and I'm going to get through this cancer, which I have, praise the Lord. And uh, we just believe in the power of prayer and, and that's our miracle. And um, there was another church in Springfield, a large church, they were doing a series on miracles and they asked me to come and and speak about that. So it was a pre-recording, and they showed that that video that morning, probably in front of about 700 people. And so uh, his name's Hunter, and he's still telling that story. He's not telling, but we're telling that story. So <laughs> if you'd stand with me, and, and let's just have a good season of prayer uh, this evening. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be in your house this evening. Father, we thank you for the presence of your spirit that we have felt thus far in the singing of your hymns. And Lord, I thank you for the miracle of healing, not only for our great-grandson, but for your servant, and Lord, for many others. We know that there is healing in the name of Jesus. Lord, we lift up to you this evening those who are sick and afflicted, not able to be here. Those, Lord, who are on the prayer list of every church that's represented here, Lord, I just lift them up before you and just ask that your will would be done in their hearts and lives. Lord, I pray this evening that you'll have your way in this service. I pray for Dr. Hermes, Lord, as he shares the word. Lord, that you would speak to him and through him in a way that would penetrate our hearts and minds and draw us closer unto you than, Lord, we've ever been before. Lord, you knew in advance who would be here this evening. You knew the needs that would be represented. And, Lord, I pray that no one leaves here tonight with an unmet need. And, Lord, I just ask that your blessings would be upon this service. Lord, for those who are at home or in a the place where they're watching on live stream, Lord, I just pray that you would bless them as well and they would sense your presence among them as well. Father, we thank you for your love and for your mercy and for your goodness. We thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your son to die that we might have everlasting life. And Lord, in all the things that are accomplished, we want to give you thanks and praise. If we've come for any other reason than to praise you, then Lord, I pray that you would check our heart and check our mind. Father, we love you. We praise you. Again, Lord, have your way in the remainder of this service, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We would like for our ushers to come forward at this time to receive our evening offering. We thank you for giving. We also have the possibility to give online. 
uh, is Susan Jones back in the corner. If you raise your hand, if you want to give by credit card, uh, you can go back there and she will make sure that that happens. Thank you, Lord, for this offering. We pray in Jesus' name, may it use it to proclaim and proclamate the gospel around the world. Amen. Well, I understand miracles, don't I? It's hard to believe that June the 25th, seven years ago, at Circleville Camp, while I was singing, he, he touched me. The Holy Spirit says, ask Dr. Tom Hermes to pray for your healing. I had stage four colon cancer. It spread from my colon to my liver and then to my pelvis tumor that was filled with toxic cancer. But God wanted me to be healed. And so it's been seven years. I give him glory and praise. Praise the Lord. I want to tell you a quick story about my brother. My father was a Nazarene pastor. And um, you ever heard of carnal Christians? Well, some carnal Christians hurt my father. But my brother broke his heart. My brother used it as an excuse to run from God. My dad was a prayer warrior, and he would pray, whatever it takes, bring him home. You have a loved one like that? He turned 90 years old, and two weeks after his 90th birthday, he died and never saw his son come to the Lord, my brother. I got a call a few years later, and he said, my brother said to me, Mark, I've got cancer, a tumor right below my eye. And they need to take it out or I'll lose my eye. And I'll be off work for five months. I was at a pastor's retreat speaking and singing. And I thought maybe I could auction off a picture or two to help my brother. The DS said, we'll do better than that. We'll pray for your brother and then take a love offering for him. The next day I called my brother just before I got up to preach and sing and I said, be careful what you say, Vaughn. I got you on speakerphone. I said, would it be okay we pray for you? And you could hear my 64-year-old brother say yes. And the pastor prayed heaven down. It was a beautiful prayer. And then I said, Vaughn, not only have we prayed for you, but we took up an offering that will pay for your house payments for the next five months. Is that okay? I got to go talk to you later. That's the true church. That's the true church. So this is the rest of the story. Early in the morning, you can hear my daddy pray, praying for my brother who'd gone astray. He knows there's a battle for his very soul. Each prayer felt like a heavy load. 
we pray. Bring him home, Lord. Bring him home, whatever it takes. Bring him home. Bring him home. Bring him home. Whatever it takes, bring him home. Days turn to months, and months turn to years. And it seemed like Dad's prayers fell on deaf ears. Because on an early October morning, the Lord called Daddy home. But his son's heart was still like a stone. Bring him home, Lord, I can hear him pray. Bring him home, whatever it takes. Bring him home, bring him home, Lord. Bring him home, whatever it takes. Bring him home, and whatever it takes finally came true when the doctor said, son, it's bad news. And it pierced like a sword, and it broke his heart in two. He cried, Lord, I don't know what to do. Then he remembered dad's prayers and how he had cared. And he fell on his knees and prayed through. <laughs> and the Lord saw his tears and quickly drew near. Dad's prayers had finally come true. I've come home, your prayers have prayed me home, I've come home, Dad, I've come home, your prayers have prayed me home, and the angels rejoice for a son had come home. I wondered if dad heard their song. If he did, he'd be shouting around God's throne. Praise God, my son's come home. He's come home. If you have a loved one or friend who's gone astray, child, you've got to pray. For there's a battle raging for every living soul. Don't stop 
bring them home. Don't stop praying. Thank you, Mark, for ministering to us. I thought the first time I heard the song, How Great Thou Art, it was 1957. It was in Madison Square Garden, and LMA and I were on our honeymoon. And that was the first time I heard How Great Thou Art. George Beverly Shea sang it along with the choir. I thought it was the best I'd ever heard it. But thank you for singing it tonight. Touch me deeply because we serve a great God. He's still on the throne. He's still healing babies. He's still singing gospel. He's still healing gospel singers. And he's still bringing sons and daughters home. And some of us have prayed a long time for loved ones. And we wonder if they're ever going to make it. But keep on praying. Keep on believing. God's on the throne. Jesus is coming back, and there's urgency to this, but he's working and moving in mighty and powerful ways. Well, I'm glad I came to church tonight. This has been worth coming already, and uh, thank the Lord for his presence and for your presence. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to the Gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 5. Gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 5, and I want to begin reading at verse 43. If you're able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at the Gospel of St. Matthew chapter 5 and reading at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I want to read that last verse again. That's the verse a number of years ago now. As I was walking out of the church, a lady came up to me and quoted that verse and said, that's one verse God should have left out of the Bible. Well, he didn't. That was her strongly stated opinion, but he didn't, and none of us have the right to remove it. But what we've done a pretty good job of is ignoring it. Tonight we're going to look at it. Jesus said, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You may be seated, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Here's what's interesting to me about this subject of perfection. 
perfection is rarely considered to be unusual or abnormal. If a student gets 100% on an exam, we call that a perfect grade. If a baseball pitcher goes out there and for nine innings doesn't allow a hit or a run, we call that a perfect game. When that big jet touches down gently and smoothly on the runway from 30,000 feet, going in the right direction at the right place, we call that a perfect landing. And quite frankly, when I'm in one of those big jets, I expect and require a perfect landing. And I think that you do as well. I've been in a few landings before that weren't quite perfect, but obviously they made it and I made it. Even though the runway was, might have been filled with all kinds of foam because the wheels wouldn't come down or simply because sometimes flying a little single prop plane over the jungles of Bolivia, the propeller would break and we still managed to get it down and get it up. Thank God. So we expect perfection. But when this word perfection is applied to Christian experience, people are horrified. And they'll throw up their hands and say, well, I'm human, and I always will be. And humans are far from being perfect. I would agree with that entire statement. We are human. At least most of you look like you are. And if you would smile, you'd look even better. And humans are far from being perfect. And furthermore, God has no objection to that statement. He would agree with it entirely. He understands per perfectly our frailties, our shortcomings, and our limitations. So when we're talking about Christian perfection, we're not talking about the perfection of our daily performance. Nor are we talking about the perfection of our intellect. Nor not even our service. For God and others. When we talk about Christian perfection, we're referring to the perfection of our love for God. And this is not the perfection of our head or of our hands. And you can have a heart that is perfect in God's sight because you love Him completely. And the reality is, even in the midst of that, you may be a very flawed, imperfect human being. But God, who looks on your heart, sees that your love for him is complete. Sometimes I hear people say, well, nobody's perfect, preacher, not even you. And really, that's not a very brilliant or original statement. But I like to remind those people that God said that there was a man who lived in the land of us who was perfect and upright and who turned away from evil and feared God. He even told us his name. He said his name was Job. The scriptures also talked about another man who was perfect, and his name was Abraham. But I read my Bible, and I think you probably do as well. And we've read what the Bible has to say about Job and about Abraham, and as far as I'm concerned, their performance was very flawed, very imperfect. And yet God spoke about their perfection. So again, I'm not talking about the perfection of our performance, but the perfection of our love for God. It's kind of like the wife who loves her husband. He has no question that she loves him. But she may nearly starve the guy to death because she never learned how to get those frozen TV dinners out of the freezer, into the microwave, and onto the table. You wouldn't question her love 
not even the quality of her love. You just question her ability to cook, and she may nearly starve her. I think a better illustration would be a mother who loves her kids. She would put her life, she puts her life on the line for those kids. She would die for them. But if you want to experience mama bear's wrath, all you have to do is just mistreat her children or not treat them properly or try to educate them in a wrong way. And school boards all across America are experiencing mama's wrath when she thinks that somebody's not instructing her children right. And yet that mother who would fight for her kids, who would put her life on her line for those children, she may nearly destroy the objects of her love by her lack of understanding as how to discipline, how to correct, how to guide a child in today's world. And so our perfection our love is our love for God, not our daily performance, not our works, but our love for him. So let's just break this down for a moment and think for a moment what this is not. It's not the perfection of our physical body. And we all know what it's like when we get tired or we're under stress or we are just not well. It sometimes affects our behavior. And we might get a little grumpy, a little grouchy, a little irritable. Now, you don't have to look at him now, but you can nudge him gently. But the reality is our physical condition affects sometimes our performance and our behavior. And it's a reminder that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And that's one of the reasons I've preached over the years, that there needs to be a place for repentance even in the sanctified life. Because sometimes our performance doesn't measure up to where it ought to be. And oftentimes it's because of physical limitations. In my last pastorate, many years ago now, we called a great very gifted evangelist to come and hold a 12-day revival meeting. This was how you did it back in the old days. You entertained the evangelist in your home. And at that time, LMA and I had four little kids. The oldest of the four was just going to kindergarten. And when the evangelist got there, great man, gifted preacher, getting up in years now, and he got there and he told me, I almost canceled this meeting. He said, I'm just exhausted. And he said, I have big red blotches all over my arms and my back and my chest. But he said, I thought if I could just get through one more meeting, I have a little break. Well, we did everything we could to make him as comfortable as we could. We loved the man. We admired his gifts and his ability, and we wanted to take good care of him. I had four little kids tiptoeing up and down the stairs for, 14, for 12 days. I told them the only time you can raise your voices or laugh out loud or make any noise is when you're in the basement or in the backyard. I mean, we bent over backwards trying to make him comfortable. We didn't have a television at that time, and the World Series was on, and he was a great baseball fan. And so I went out and rented a television and put it right in his room where he could watch the World Series. LMA even served him some of his meals in his room. 
We did everything that we could to make him as comfortable as possible. Everything went great until the last Sunday morning of the revival. He's preaching a powerful sermon. He's depicting the crucifixion of Christ. He's literally down on his knees. He's driving the spikes through the hands of the feet of Jesus, and the people are right on the edges of their seat, and he's coming right down to the conclusion when the telephone in my study rang just off the platform. Little Jimmy, sitting down there in the front row, little cripple guy, didn't realize that the ushers would get the phone back in the church office. His only thought was to help. And he gets up and he hobbles across the front. And he goes in and answers the phone. That wouldn't have been so bad. But he comes back out and he stands right down here in front of the great preacher as he's preaching his sermon, and he begins to point back there to one person in a crowd of 600 people that was wanted on the phone. Everybody was distracted. I saw the red come up on the neck and the face of the preacher. He had a big, booming voice. And all of a sudden, he stopped, and he said, Will you please sit down? Whatever it is, it's not that important. Whoa, you could have poured ice water on the crowd, and it wouldn't got any colder than that. Meeting was out. He tried to bring it back. He tried to give the altar call, but it was to no avail. And it was the big preacher who ruined it. It wasn't little Jimmy. It wasn't the fact that he went and answered the phone. It wasn't the fact that he came back out and distracted everybody. It was the great preacher, the great holiness preacher who thundered from the pulpit and embarrassed little Jimmy. Jimmy slumped in his seat, the tears just streaming down across his cheeks. And I know what my people were thinking. I know they were thinking, oh, did you see that? Did you hear that? He was mad. His face was red. He needs another trip to the altar. He needs another dip. I know that's what they were thinking. And I saw the spirit of the man when the service was over. He literally ran off the platform, down in the front, and pulled little Jimmy into his arms. As the tears were pouring down across his cheeks, he said, Sir, I hurt you. I embarrassed you. I spoke too gruffly to you. I'm so wrong. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Little Jimmy looked up in the face of the great preacher. He said, It was so dumb of me. I ruined your sermon. I ruined the service. Can you please forgive me? And that night in the closing service, the great evangelist got up and apologized and asked the entire congregation to forgive him. Now look, it wasn't that he wasn't sanctified. It wasn't, he didn't need another trip to the altar. What he needed to do was go home and sit down on the front porch with a nice cold glass of lemonade and a good book to read and let God through time and nature recreate, restore a weary, worn-out, exhausted body. His humanity got out on him at an untimely moment and ruined a great, what might have been a great service and gave me a great illustration. <laughs> so anyway, just remember... 
when we talk about Christian perfection, we're not talking about the perfection of your physical body. Sin is not something that's located in your physical body. It's not in your muscles. It's not in your skin. It's not in your organs. It's not in your bones. Basically, the body is human. It is amoral, and you can commit sin with your body, but sin is in your heart. Sin is a disposition that infects, contaminates, corrupts the body. That disease of sin is in one's heart. It's been interesting that down across the years, there's, there's always been those people that have taught that the opposite, that the body was sinful. And they would teach that you couldn't be sanctified until in the moment of death, when your soul was leaving your body. And it's a true story of a pastor's who, pastor who had preached that all of his life, and his wife had a sister that attended the great Indian Springs camp meeting. And she kept asking her sister, come on down. It's a wonderful camp meeting. Great preaching, great fellowship, great music. Come on down. So one year, her sister decided to go. She gets down to Indian Springs, and she hears these great evangelists like John Church and John Brasher and all these other great holiness preachers preaching on holiness, inviting people to the altar to be sanctified. She saw them come in and praying and standing and testifying to being sanctified, and there was this great hunger for righteousness, for heart purity that welled up in her heart. As soon as she got home, she told her preacher husband about it. They're supposed to have all the answers. And she said, would you pray with me? I really want to be sanctified. Oh, he said, I meant to warn you before you went down there. Those people mean well, but they're all mixed up in their doctrine and their theology. You can't be sanctified until your soul is leaving the body. So I promise you, if I'm around, when you're dying, I'll pray with you then to be sanctified. Well, it absolutely broke her heart. Now, I don't know how to explain this, and I don't need to explain it. I just know it's true. I don't know if it was psychosomatic or what. But lo and behold, within a few days, she got very, very ill. In fact, she was so sick, they called the doctor. He examines her, and he said to her husband, there's nothing I can do. She's dying. There's not a thing I can do except try to keep her comfortable. Well, she heard him. As soon as the doctor left, it was almost like good news to her. And she said to her husband in her weakened condition, you told me you'd pray with me to be sanctified when I was dying. The doctor just said, I'm dying. Will you pray with me now to be sanctified? Well, he didn't much believe in it, but he'd given his word. And he prayed. And thank God she prayed. And one of them, I would have to believe it was probably her, touched heaven. And God came, cleansed her heart, and sanctified her wholly. Well, the incredible thing is, she starts to get better. I mean, what would you expect? All the stories of healing that you've heard here tonight, she begins to get better. And after a while, she's up and around, and she says to her husband, tell me, what am I supposed to do? I've been sanctified, and it's so wonderful. I don't want to give it up, and I'm better. I'm not going to die. What should I do? He said, well, just keep it. <laughs> and God spoke to him through that experience, changed, 
not only his heart and his mind, but his theology. And he became one of the most powerful holiness preachers of his day, mightily used of God and leading others into the sanctified life. Listen, friends, this doctrine of entire sanctification, it's not particularly a dying grace. It's a living grace. It's an experience for the now. It's what's going to help you today to be able to rise higher and go deeper into the grace of God and live a holy life that will bring honor and glory to God. Neither is this the perfection of your emotions. You know, if we could guarantee that a sanctified person in two trips to the altar could have perfect patience and perfect emotional poise, I think, to use the vernacular of the world, we could package that and market that and pack our churches. Because everybody, almost everybody, wants patience, more of it, and they want it now. You know, it's interesting to me. I know some people that have enormous amounts of patience. And they're not even saved. They don't even go to church. It just doesn't seem fair. But they just seem to be put together in such a way that they have incredible patience. And I know some godly, sanctified saints of God who have walked with God for years, that almost every day of their life they pray for patience, and sometimes they find themselves praying for patience more than once a day, maybe many times during the course of the day. Several years ago, I went down to Honduras to preach to a, a pastor's conference. I took with me a pastor from here in the States. When I would preach... I would have to have a translator. And I almost always, when I was in a Spanish-speaking country, was blessed to have Tim Hawk be my translator, very gifted as a translator. But when he would preach, the pastor I took with me, he had grown up in South America and was fluent in Spanish. And it would just roll out of him, and you would see the immediate connection with that congregation of Honduran pastors. And usually when he would preach, I would sit in the back row and I'd have a missionary sitting there beside me to interpret for me what he was saying. And one night he gave his testimony and he said he had prayed and prayed and prayed to be sanctified. He had surrendered everything he knew to surrender. He had put everything on the altar he knew to do, but he said, I just couldn't get a witness and he said, finally, I told the Lord, I'm going to accept this by faith, but would you please someday, sometime, somehow, bear witness to my heart that I'm sanctified. He said several months went along, and one Saturday, he was down on the kitchen floor, under the kitchen sink, fixing a leaky pipe. His wife comes in while he's on the floor, down under the sink, reaches up over his head in the cupboard above him to get something out of the cupboard. And then as she turns to leave, she just sort of shoves the door back, thinking that it had shut. The door swung wide open. He had no idea the door was open. All of a sudden, the job's finished. 
It's not often a preacher feels like the job's finished. And this was a great feeling because the pipe no longer leaked. The job was finished. And with great satisfaction, he pushed out from under the sink and raised up and smashed his head on that cupboard door. Sparks, (laughs) stars flew, blood spurted. And he laid there on the floor almost unconscious. Finally, he began to get his senses back. And he said, and I'm sitting in the back row listening to this. It's a congregation of Hispanic, high-spirited, high-tempered Honduran pastors. And he said, all of a sudden, I got blessed. And I realized that this was God's way of bearing witness to me that I was sanctified. Because he said, I didn't reach up and slam the door shut. I didn't holler at my wife and chew her out for leaving the cupboard door open. He said, I never reacted at all. And he said, that was the witness. I could not help myself on that back row that day to groan just a little bit. And I thought, God help us. Why do we put these kind of insane pressures on people that are inhuman? that not even God expects. I can think of several other things. I can think maybe he was so nearly knocked out that he couldn't react. And by the time he gained his senses, he didn't need to overreact. I can think maybe he also, maybe he'd reached a point of maturity in his walk with God that he didn't need to holler at his wife. But to say that that was the witness of the Spirit would not leave many people left among the sanctified. It's a wonderful thing to have composure and patience and poise. That comes not through a trip to the altar. God doesn't just pour great big chunks of patience into our soul. Patience is developed in the nitty-gritty of life. It's marriage that develops patience. It's raising kids that develops patience. It's long-winded preachers that develop patience. Little by little, we make progress. But when we talk about Christian perfection... We're not talking about the perfection of our emotions. Neither is it the perfection of our intellect. This is the reason why saved, sanctified, saints of God don't always agree with each other. And yet we often abuse them and tell them if they really prayed up and paid up, they they would always agree with us. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, I told my board last week that if they were all prayed up and paid up and sanctified, we would never have a disagreement in board meeting. We would always agree on every issue. I said, man, you didn't really tell him that, did you? He said, yes, I did. But I said, but you don't believe that, do you? Well, he said, yes, I do, don't you? He never should have said, don't you? Because here's the reality. He got a load that he maybe wasn't expecting. We've every sanctified saint of God has had different experiences. We've gone through different levels and degrees of knowledge and training and education. We've been different places. We've seen different things. We're wired differently. And to say that the saints of God will always agree with one another is almost an impossibility. And it has nothing to do with Christian perfection. 
I mean, even in the Bible, we see people, godly people, being mightily used of the Lord that disagreed with each other as to how to get the job done. Sanctified people make mistakes. And the best thing you can do when you've made a mistake in judgment or in valuation or whatever it might be, you need enough humility to acknowledge the fact that you are wrong and ask for forgiveness. I was listening to a well-known evangelical leader preach one night, and he said that God bless him and his wife with two boys. They were very creative in the way they named those two sons. They named them James and John, probably the sons of thunder like the original ones were. But he said, we didn't give them many jobs to do when they were small. But he said, in our town, the garbage collectors would come twice a week. And so he said, I told the boys, I said, James, on Tuesday, when you get off the bus, first thing you're to do when you get home from school is get the garbage pails out there on the curb and put them in the garage. And John, you're supposed to do it on Friday. As soon as you get off the bus, as soon as you get home from school, get those garbage pails and put them in the garage. He said, I came home from the office one day, and the garbage pails were still out on the curb. He said, I went right into my son's, John's room. And I said, John, I've told you a thousand times. Parents never exaggerate, do they? But he said, I've told you a thousand times. As soon as you get home, get those garbage pails. Bring them in off the curb. Put them in the garage. You've forgotten again. You didn't do it again. And he turned him over his knee and gave him a spanking. He goes out in the kitchen to greet his wife. And she said, honey, which one of the boys did you spank? He said, well, I spanked John. I've told that boy a thousand times to bring those garbage pails in. Well, she said, honey, it wasn't John's turn to bring the garbage pails in. It was James' turn today. Oh, you could have hit him in the stomach, and it wouldn't have hit him any harder. He goes right back into John's room where John's still wiping tears out of his eyes said, John, I've made a terrible mistake. I was wrong. I thought it was your turn. It wasn't your turn. It was your brother's turn, and I've spanked you. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And the little guy looks up at his big daddy, and he said, Sure, Dad. Nobody's perfect, not even you. So he related that incident in his life at a citywide auditorium where he was preaching now many years later. Use it as an illustration. In the crowd that night was his wife and his two sons with their wives. They were now grown and married. When he told that story, both James and John looked immediately to their mother and whispered, Mom, did that really happen? Is that really true? Oh, she said, it really happened and it's really true. They didn't even remember it. And that's the beauty of what that dad did. When he made a mistake, he went right back to the one he had corrected and asked his forgiveness. And years later, the little guy didn't even remember it. I understand why James didn't remember it. But it's remarkable that John didn't remember it. And I think that's 
the reason. Let me mention one more. Neither is it the perfection of our service. Wouldn't it be a, a wonderful thing to preach a perfect sermon, to sing a perfect song, to provide a perfect leadership to a church or an organization or whatever it is that you're leading? But thank God he does not require perfection of service. When we talk about Christian perfection, what God requires is that we give our best and that we give the best of our ability, but he does not require perfection. It was a blistering, hot July 4th. We had just moved into the new parsonage that the church had bought there in Columbus, Ohio. And we had set that day aside since it was a holiday that that day, LMA and I were going to get out in the yard and do some much-needed yard work in the new parsonage. Well, it was a blistering hot July 4th. It was hot and humid. And it was now in the middle of the afternoon. And I think maybe that time I might have been trimming some hedges or something. And all of a sudden, my oldest daughter, who was just four years old, came around the corner of the house. She'd been praying, playing in the dirt. And she said, Daddy, are you hot? I said, I'm sure hot. And she disappeared. And unbeknown to us, she went in the house and she got a glass. It was the glass that I'd used for lunch. She got it out of the kitchen sink. There was still a little bit of grape Kool-Aid in the bottom of the glass. And she filled it up with water and then she put one little hand on the bottom of the glass and that other dirty, filthy little hand over the top of the glass. She comes around the corner of the house. Her blue eyes are sparkling, filled with love. And she said, Daddy, I brought you a drink of water. And I looked at that water. It was now mud and Kool-Aid and some water. And I looked back at those beautiful blue eyes, and I saw this was a spontaneous expression of a little girl's love for her father. No one had coached her. No, no one had asked her to do it. It was all on her own. And it was beautiful to behold. And at that point, it was the best she could do. And I'll tell you what I did. I took it. I didn't throw it away. I took it, and I drank it every last drop. And it must not have hurt me too much because I survived all these years to come and tell you about it. Now, if I go to her house in a few weeks and she serves me a dirty glass of water, believe me, I'm not going to drink it and I'm not going to go over the country telling anybody about it. Thank God she can do better now and we expect better of her. But at that point, it was the best that a little girl could do. And it was a spontaneous expression of her love for God. And listen... This is what matters when it comes to our service for God. Are we giving him the best that we have? Are we seeking to excel in what he's given us to do? And we do it from a heart of love. God looks at our service and he sees the flaws. I don't care how good you are. God sees the imperfections. He sees the shortcomings and the limitations. But the thing that makes it perfectly acceptable to our Heavenly Father is that it's the, our best gift, our best offering at that time, and we do it from a heart of love. 
So when we talk about Christian perfection, we're not talking about the absolute perfection of God. Neither are we talking about the perfections of the angels. Neither does this mean that you will never be tempted, nor does it remove the possibility in a moment of weakness of committing sin. You say, well, then what in the world is it? And I'm going to have to go through this very quickly. Let me just mention three things. On our part, it is a perfect or a complete, a complete consecration of our life, of our will, of our all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing held back. He is the supreme chief affection of our heart. Complete consecration. Totally abandoned to God. Secondly, it's a perfect purity of heart. And this is God's work. When we present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice, that's when God can move and cleanse and purify our hearts from that inherited disposition of sin and give us hearts that are clean and pure. And lastly, and this is the heart of it, friends, it's loving God with all of your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, and yes, even loving your enemies. Thank God it's not one of those touchy-feely, emotional kinds of love. But it's agape love. It's a principle by which we live. It's the power of Almighty God working in our heart and life that enables us to turn the other cheek and to go the second mile, and to forgive 70 times 7, and you will never be any more like Jesus. You'll never be any more God-like than when you are in demonstrating true Christian love. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what our world desperately, desperately needs to see in evidence. They know all the things we're against. Hopefully they know some of the things we're for. What is most important is